Chapter Twenty Six of the Riddle of the Frozen Flame by Mary E. Hanshu and Thomas W. Hanshu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six: Justice and Justification. The courtroom was crowded on every side. There was barely space for another person to enter in comfort. And when the news went round in the street that Sir Nigel Merriton, late of the army, was being tried for his life, and that things were going pretty black against him, all London seemed to turn out with a morbid curiosity to hear the sentence of death passed. Petrie, stationed at the door, spent most of his time waving a white-gloved hand and shaking his head until he felt that it would shortly tumble off his neck and roll away upon the pavement. Mister Narkom had given him instructions that if any one of any importance in the affair in question should turn up, he was to admit him, but to be adamant in every other case. And so the queue of morbid-minded women and idle men grew long and longer, and the clamour louder and louder, until the tempers of the police on guard grew very short, and the crowd was handled more and more firmly. The effect of this began to tell. Slowly it thinned out, and the people turned once more into the Strand, sauntering along with their heads half the time over their shoulders. While Petrie stood and mopped his face and wondered what had become of Mister Cleek, or if he had turned up in one of his many aliases and he hadn't recognised him, like as not that's what's happened. He told himself, stuffing his thumbs into his policeman's belt and setting his feet apart. But what gets over me is not a sight of I seen of young Dollops. And where Mister Cleek is, well, that there young fellow is bound to be too. Case is drawing to a close, I reckon, by this time. I wouldn't be in that young lord's shoes. He shook his head at the thought and fell to considering the matter, and in a most sympathetic frame of mind, if the truth be told. Half an hour passed; another sped by. The crowd now worried him very little. And judging from one or two folk that drifted out of the courtroom with rather pale faces and set mouths, as though they had heard something that sickened them and were going to be out of it before the end came, Petrie began to think that that end was approaching very near. And he hadn't seen Mister Cleek go into the place or Dollops either. Funny thing that. In his phone message that morning, Mister Cleek had said he would be at the court sharp at one, and it was half past two now. Well, he was sorry the governor hadn't turned up in time. He'd be disappointed, no doubt, and after all the telephoning and hunting up of directories that he himself had done personally that very morning, Mister Cleek would be feeling rather off it if he turned up too late. Petrie took a few steps up and down, and his eyes roamed the Strand leisurely. He came to a sudden halt as a red limousine, the red limousine he knew so well, whirled up to the pavement's edge, stopped in front of him with a grinding of brakes. A door flashed open, and he heard the sound of a sharp order given in that one unmistakable voice. Mister Cleek was there. 
followed by Dollops close at his heels, and looking as though they had torn through hell itself to get there in time. Petrie took a hurried step forward and swung back the big iron gate still farther. "'In time, Petrie?' Cleek asked breathlessly. "'Just about, sir. Near shave, though, from what I see of the people are coming out. Heard the case had gone against Sir Nigel, sir. Poor chap.' "'Here, you, Dollops!' But Dollops was gone in his master's wake, in his arms a huge ungainly bundle that looked like a stove-pipe wrapped up in brown paper, gone through the courtroom door without so much as passing the time of day with an old pal. Petrie felt distinctly hurt about it, and sauntered back to his place with his smile gone, while Cleek, Hurrying through the crowded courtroom and passing by the sheer power of his name, the various court officials who would have stopped him stopped only as he reached the space before the judge's bench. Already the jury were filing in one by one and taking their seats. The black cap lay beside Mr. Justice Granger's spectacles, a sinister emblem having its response in the white-faced man who stood in the dock, awaiting the verdict upon his life. Cleek saw it all in one glance, and then spoke. "'Your lordship,' he said, addressing the judge, who looked at him with raised eyebrows, "'may I address the court?' The barristers arose, scandalised at the interruption, knowing not whether advantage for prosecution or defence lay in what this man had to say. The clerk of the court stood aghast, ready to order the court officers to eject the interloper who dared interrupt the course of the majestic law. All stood poised for a breathless moment, held in check by the power of the man Cleek, or by uncertainty as to the action of the judge. A tense pause, and then the court broke the silence. You may speak. Your lordship, may it please the court, said Cleek, I have evidence here which will save this man's life. I demand to show it to the court. The barristers, held in check by the stern practice of the English law, which, unlike American practice, does not allow counsel to becloud the issue with objection and technical argument, remained motionless. They knew Cleek, and knew that here was the crisis of the case they had presented so learnedly. "'This is an unusual occurrence, sir.' at last spoke the judge, and you are distinctly late. The jury has returned, and the foreman is about to pronounce the verdict. What is it you have to say, sir? Your lordship, it is simply this. Cleek threw back his head. The prisoner at bar, he pointed to Merriton, who at the first sound of Cleek's voice had spun round a sudden hope finding birth in his dull eyes, is innocent. Also, he switched round upon his heel and surveyed the courtroom, I beg of your lordship that you will immediately give orders for no person to leave this court. The instigator of the crime is before my eyes. 
Perhaps you do not know me, but I have been at work upon this case for some time, and am a colleague of Mr. Narkom of Scotland Yard. My name is Cleek, Hamilton Cleek. I have your permission to continue. A murmur went up round the crowded courtroom. The judge nodded. He needed no introduction to Cleek. The gentlemen of the jury will be seated. Declared the court, the clerk will call Hamilton Cleek as a witness. This formality accomplished, the judge indicated that he himself would question this crucial eleventh-hour witness. Mister Cleek, he began, you say this man is innocent. We will hear your story. Cleek motioned to Dollops, who stood at the back of the court. And instantly the lad pushed his way through the crowd to his master's side, carrying the long, ungainly burden in his arms. Meanwhile, at the back of the room, a commotion had occurred. The magic name of that most magical of men, Hamilton Cleek, detective, had wrought what Cleek had known it would. Some one was pushing for the door with all the strength that was in him. But already the key had turned, and Hammond, as guardian, held up his hand. Cleek knew, but for the time said nothing, and the crowd had hidden whoever it was from the common view. He simply motioned Dollops to lay his burden upon the table, and then spoke once more. "My lud," he said clearly, "may I ask a favour of the court?" I should be obliged if you would call every witness in this matter here simultaneously, set them out in a row, if you will, but call them now. Thanks. The judge motioned to the clerk, and through the hushed silence of the court, the dull voice droned out, "Anthony West, William Borkins, Lester Stark, Gustave Brailier, Miss Antoinette Brailier." Doctor Bartholomew, and so on through the whole list. As each name was called, the owner of it came forward and stood in front of the judge's high desk. A most unusual proceeding, sir," said that worthy, again settling the spectacles upon his nose and frowning down at Cleek. But knowing who you are. I appreciate your lordship's kindness. Now then, all there. That's good, and at least every one of them is here. No chance of slipping away now. Now for it. He turned back to the table with something of suppressed eagerness in his movements, and a low murmur of excitement went up round the crowded courtroom. Rapidly he tore off the wrappings from the long snake-like bundle, and held one of the objects up to view. Allow me to draw your attention to this," he said in a loud, clear voice, every note of which carried to the back of the long room. This, as you possibly know, sir, is a piece of electric tubing. Made for the express purpose of conveying safely delicate electric wirings that are used for installations, so that they may not be damaged in transit from the factory to the agent who sells them.
You would like to see the wirings, I know. For answer, he whipped open the joints of one of the tubes, set it upon end, and from inside the narrow casing came a perfect shower of golden sovereigns clattering to the floor and across the table in front of the astonished clerk's eyes. The judge sat up suddenly and rubbed his eyes. God bless my soul, he began, and then subsided into silence. The eyes of young Sir Nigel Merriton nearly leapt from their sockets with astonishment, and every man in the crowd was gaping. Cleek laughed. Rather of a surprise, I must admit, isn't it? He said with a slight shrug of the shoulders. And no doubt you're wondering what all this has to do with the case in hand. Well, that'll come along all in good time. Golden sovereigns, you see, carefully stacked up to fill the little tubing to its capacity, and thousands of them done the same, too. There's a perfect fortune down there in that factory at Saltfleet. Mr. Narkom, he turned round and surveyed the superintendent with mirthful eyes. What about these bank robberies now, eh? I told you something would crop up. You see, it has. We've discovered the hiding place of the gold and the prime leader in the whole distressing affair. The rest ought to be easy. He whipped round suddenly toward the line of witnesses, letting his eyes travel over each face in turn. Past Tony West's reddened countenance, past Dr. Bartholomew's pale intensity, past Borkins, standing very straight and white and frightened looking. Then, of a sudden, he leapt forward, his hand clamped down upon someone's shoulder, and his voice exclaimed triumphantly, And here the beauty is! Then, before the astonished eyes of the crowd of spectators stood Mr. Gustave Brellier, writhing and twisting in the clutch of the firm fingers and spitting forth fury in a Flemish patois that would have struck Cleek dead on the spot if words could kill. A sudden din arose. People pressed forward the better to see and hear, exclaiming loudly, condemning, criticizing. The judge's frail old hand brought silence at last, and Antoinette Brellier came forward from her place and clutched Cleek by the arm. It cannot be, Mr. Cleek, she said piteously. I tell you, my uncle is the best of men, truly. He could never have done this thing that you accuse him of. And, and the worst of devils, that I can thoroughly endorse, my dear young lady, returned Cleek with a grim laugh. I am sorry for you, very, but at least you will have consolation in your future husband's release. That should compensate you. Here, officer, take hold of this man. We'll get down to brass tacks now. 
take hold of him and hold him fast, for a more slippery snake never was created. All right, Sir Nigel, it is all right, lad. Sit down. This is going to be a long story, but it's got to be told. Fetch chairs for the witnesses, constable, and don't let any of them go yet. I want them to hear this thing through. In his quick, easy manner, he seemed suddenly to have taken command of the court, and, knowing that he was Hamilton Cleek, and that Cleek would use his own methods or none, Mr. Justice Granger took the wisest course and let him alone. When all was in readiness, Cleek settled down to the story. He was the only man left standing, a straight, slim figure, full of that controlled power and energy that is so often possessed by a small but perfect machine. He bowed to the judge with something of the theatrical in his manner, and then rested one hand upon the clerk's table. "'Now, naturally, you are wanting to hear the story,' he said briskly, "'and I'll make it as brief as possible. "'But I warn you there's a good deal to be told.' and afterward there'll be work for Scotland Yard, more work than perhaps they'll care about, but that is another story. To begin with, the jury, my lord, was undoubtedly from all signs about to convict the prisoner upon a charge of murder, a murder of which he was entirely innocent. You have heard Merriton's story. Believe me, every word of it is true. "'circumstantial evidence to the contrary notwithstanding. "'In the first place, Dacre Wynne was shot through the temple "'at the instigation of that man there. "'He pointed to Brellier, standing pale and still between two constables. "'Foully shot, as many others had been similarly done to death, "'because they had ventured forth across the fens at night.' and were likely to investigate this man's charming little midnight movements further than he cared about. To creatures of his like, human life is nothing compared to what it can produce. Men and women are a means to an end, and that end, the furtherance of his own wealth, his own future. The epitome of prehistoric selfishness, is it not? club the next man that comes along, and steal from his dead body all that he has worked for. Oh, a pretty sort of a tale this is, I promise you. What's that, my lord? What has the frozen flame to do with all this? Why, the answer to that is as simple as ABC. The frozen flames, or that most natural of phenomena, marsh gas, of which I won't weary you with an explanation, arose from that part of the fens where the rotting vegetation was at its worst. What more natural, then, than that this human fiend should endeavour to shape even this thing to his own ends? The villagers had always been superstitious of these lights— but their notice had never been particularly called to them before the story of the frozen flames had been carefully spread from mouth to mouth by Brellier's tools. Then one man, braver than the rest, ventured forth and never came back. 
the story gained credence even with the more educated few. Another, unwilling to conform to public opinion, did likewise, and he too went into the great unknown. The list of Brellier's victims, supposed, of course, to be burnt up by the frozen flames, grew fairly lengthy in the four years that he has been using them as a screen for his underhanded work. A guard, and I've seen one of the men myself during a little midnight encounter that I had with him, went wandering over that part of the district armed with a revolver. The first sight of a stranger caused him to use his weapon. Meanwhile, behind the screen of the lights, the bank robbers were bringing in their gold by motor, and hiding the sacks down in a network of underground passageways that I also discovered and traversed. They ran by devious ways, both to a field in Saltfleet conveniently near the factory, and by another route up to the back kitchen of Meryton Towers. You'll admit that when I discovered this to be the case, I felt pretty uneasy about Sir Nigel's innocence, but a still further search brought to light another passage, which ran straight into the study of Withersby Hall, occupied by the Brelliers, and was hidden under the square rug in front of the fireplace. A nice, convenient little spot for our friend here to carry on his good work. Just a few words to say that he didn't want to be disturbed in his study. A locked door, a rug moved, and there you are. He was free from all prying eyes to investigate the way things were going, and to personally supervise the hiding of the gold. While outside upon the fens, men were being killed like rats, because one or two of them chose to use their intelligence and wanted to find out what the flames really were. They found out all right, poor devils, and their widows waited for them in vain. And what does he do with all this gold, you ask? Why, ship it by using an electrical factory where he makes tubings and fittings, and a good deal of mischief to boot. The sovereigns are hidden, as you have seen, and are shipped out at night in fishing-boats loaded below the watermark. I've helped with the loading myself, so I know. En route for Belgium, where his equally creditable brother Adolf receives the tubes and invariably ships them back as being of the wrong gauge. Look here. He stopped speaking for a moment, and, stepping forward, lifted up another tubing from the table and unfastened it at one of the joints. Then he held it up for all to see. See that stuff in there? That's tungsten. Perhaps you don't all know what tungsten is. Well, it's a valuable commodity that is mined from the earth, and which is used expressly in the making of electric lamps. Our good friend Adolf, like his brother, has the same twist of brain. Instead of keeping the tubes, he returns them, with the rather thin excuse that they are of the wrong gauge, 
and fills them with this tungsten from the famous tungsten mines for which Belgium holds first place in the world. And so the stuff is shipped in absolutely free of duty, while our friend here unloads it, supplies the raw material to one or two firms in town, trading under the name of Jonathan Brent. You see, I've got the whole facts, Brelier, and uses some himself for this factory, which is the blind for his other trading ideas. Very clever, isn't it? The judge nodded. I thought you would agree so, my lord. Even crime can have its clever side, and more often than not, the criminal brain is the cleverest which the world produces. Where was I? Ah, yes, the shipping of the stuff to Belgium. You see, Brelier is clever there. He knows that the sudden appearance of all this gold at his own bank would arouse suspicions. "'especially as the robberies have been so frequent. "'So he determines that it is safer out of the country, "'and as the exchange of British gold is high, "'he makes money that way. "'Turns his hand to everything, in fact,' he laughed. Oh, "'But now we're turning our hands to him, "'and the law will have its toll, penny for penny, life for life.' You've come to the end of your resources, Brelier, when you engaged those two strange workmen, or, better still, your accomplice did it for you. You didn't know they were Cleek and his man, did you? You didn't know that on that second night after we'd worked there at the factory for you, we investigated that secret passage in the field outside Saltfleet Road. You didn't know that while you walked down that passage in the darkness with your man Jim Dobbs, or Dirty Jim, to give him the sobriquet by which he is known among your employees, that we were hidden against the wall, opposite to that first little niche where the bags of sovereigns stood. And that, though I hadn't seen you, something in your voice struck a note of familiarity in my memory. You didn't know that, then? Well, perhaps it's just as well, because I might not be here now to tell this story and to hand you over to justice. End of chapter 26